G'day digesters. Ooh, I don't know if that's a thing. Uh, we, we won't stick with that. But g'day, and here's what I'm working on. I'd love your recommendations and directions on the following series. I'm still finishing a series on sexuality. Still working on the conversion therapy bill series, different perspectives around that bill that Victoria just introduced. And now I'm looking to explore an indigenous worldview and perspective. So if you have any gurus on these topics, you'd love for me to get on the show, send them my way. If you have found someone else's guru very offensive and want to see their ideas explored further, also send them my way. Now you're probably thinking, Conrad, this is 2021. Nobody's got gurus. Uh, gurus, I kind of mean experts that you love to listen to. So as much as we all think might think, I don't really have gurus, I guarantee you do. Who do you listen to, take advice from, regularly hear from? I would love to talk to them. So any gurus around those ideas that I've just outlined, send them my way. If you want to interact with me, you can do so on Instagram. If you're someone who wants to waste more time and a bit of money, feel free to jump the paywall and hear what I really think with my buddy Russ. You can find the link for that on Instagram or in the show notes of this episode below. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Enjoy the app, app which is short for episode. Thank you. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back, everybody joining us live on Instagram and everyone in podcast land. Welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we fear no idea and we practice humanizing those we might disagree with by doing a strange, weird thing, just listening to them and seeing if we can understand them. My name's Conrad. Now, if you are a new friend of the show, welcome. You're very welcome. It's great to have you here, but I will warn you straight up, I've started doing this just to give you a heads up. This podcast isn't for everyone. Now, even though everyone is welcome, don't get me wrong, I was just scrolling my Instagram and I received a comment from someone on one episode saying, quote, this person who I guess they just listened to is so uninformed, what a waste of my time. Now, I loved this comment. It, it made me smile because this person has just entered the Ideas Digest experience. You're welcome. And his feedback is, what a waste of my time. Um, so unfortunately, you know, the diff- different people, different experiences, but I loved it so much because they obviously listened to the episode and I think probably pushed through enough to have wasted at least some time. Now, after experiencing this, this feeling of discomfort, okay, that's what they just experienced listening to the episode, what a waste of my time, experience a lot of discomfort. Now, when you get to this point, you can either unfollow and just ditch or you can keep pushing through and keep listening because that uncomfortable space, that's the space I'm trying to occupy. And I think if you stick with it long enough, you might learn to love it. So some episodes might be a struggle. Others might be better than some others. But if you stick with it, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, And I think a lot of you are enjoying it as well because the numbers are steadily, steadily growing. So disclaimer out of the way, I want to welcome new friend of the show, Brian McLaren. Brian, thanks for joining uh, me here live on Instagram and on the podcast. 
I'm glad to be with you. So, Brian, I was reading your latest book uh, and watching some of your clips on YouTube, just doing my due diligence here as a podcast host, and I came up with some clickbait. This is just what I do to like... I It, it should... If done correctly, it should misrepresent your ideas on some level. So here we go. You can tell me. You can tell me what you think about it. Uh, here we go. The clickbait I came up with was: choose either doubt or authoritarianism. Nothing makes clickbait better than an ultimatum, Brian. Out of ten, how well does this clickbait uh, sum up your idea? I love it. I love it. I wish I would have put that in the book. That's great. <laughs> uh, I could you could tag it on a byline and okay you know, just just that's put good. the credit there yeah I'll, no worries I'll, I'll flip well, out you that's good uh, yeah 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 thanks I'll, I'll give that a, a not bad out of 10 before we get to the clickbait Brian where you can you can kind of explain it and go where you want to go I'd like to play a little game with you now that game I have called it confessing my assumptions and our assumptions as an ideas digest community uh, can can I confess some assumptions to you, Brian, Sounds and you great. can correct the record? <laughs> All right. Because I've done some Googling and with people like yourself who are prolific authors, it, it makes my job easy because the assumptions are all out there. So I'll, I'll start with, you know, a Australian-centric one. And I'll be honest, uh, because, because we're, I'm Australian here, um, we have our own prejudices and assumptions about Americans. I'm assuming you are American. Yes. Okay. So us Australians might be thinking American guy. This guy's arrogant. Brian, do you think you're better than me because you're American and I'm Australian? Um, have you watched our politics lately? <laughs> <laughs> I actually have. I definitely have. Yeah. I think no American can feel superior to anybody after the debacle that's been going on in our country. So <laughs> well, that's that's pretty bad. I have been watching it. Has been at least for me so far away, pretty entertaining, but very obviously serious. Yeah. If you are American, um, all right, that that was the easiest one I've got after some googling, Brian. You've gone liberal. This is an American thing as well. Like I don't think Australians say, "Oh, he's gone liberal." But as, as I as I search, it's like that's the common thing. Like liberal's a dirty word, yes. and you're one of them. Yes. I'd say it's at least that bad and probably worse. Yeah. Oh, okay. The the L word. We should censor this maybe for American audiences. Uh, okay, another one. And this one's a bit similar, uh, but it was a recurring theme. You're, you're like a lefty imposing your politics onto the Bible. Oh, I love that. Um, uh well, what am I supposed to say except that only a person who is a right winger who is imposing their politics on the Bible would ever think to say such a thing? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well rebutted. Well rebutted. Everyone's imposing their politics on the Bible. Not not bad. Uh, this is this might be one you've gotten a lot over the years. You're a false teacher leading people astray. Well, these days, I really hope I am leading people astray from a patriarchal <laughs> okay. uh, and uh, eco-damaging e eco form of uh, religion. Okay. So, yep, we'll, we'll double down on that one. Hopefully, is at some level leading people astray. Uh, and last one, you, as you read the Bible, you're putting yourself as an authority over the bar over the bible 
rather than under it. Yes. Well, I hope I'm doing neither of those. I, I hope I'm okay. I'm putting myself as a member of the community who's part of a ongoing uh, conversation and sometimes argument and sometimes debate about uh, what's really important. All right. Uh, Brian, what have I missed any? Have you gotten some that I've missed? What are some assumptions that you frequently get? Well, I, I just have to tell you, Conrad, I'm remembering I was in Norway once in a tiny little town that it, it was a, it was such a small town that me coming there meant that I got a pa- newspaper article written about me. And the journalist was a non-religious person and he had done what you just did. He Googled about me and uh, or Googled me. And so he sat down with this thick uh, pile of, photocopies. And he looked a little nervous and he said, well, to begin, did you know that you are the son of Satan? <laughs> so <laughs> I missed that yeah, one. So, Damn it. Yeah. And would you like to respond to that one? Is that true or not? Well, it certainly was true in the person's mind who said it. <laughs> yeah, wow. Son of Satan. That is heavy. Yeah. I thought I came hard hitting, but uh, th- that's that tops it. So this this clickbait that I've that I've put that I've tried to sum up and just squeeze into a little ball of a sentence. Choose either doubt or authoritarianism. Where would you start? Yeah. To unpack those ideas for me. Yes. Well, you know, one thing I would say, Conrad, is that everything I can think of that's human can be beautiful and it can be horrible. And every beautiful thing that's human can really easily be corrupted. So I think there's a dimension to faith. And another word for faith is trust that can be really beautiful. You know, two people fall in love and they become, they take a a monumental risk that the other person won't destroy them. And so they begin to reveal themselves and they they trust the person enough to reveal. And then the other person trusts enough to reveal back. I mean, when you think about the beauty of mutual trust, uh, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But then you think about people who learn how to manipulate trust. We call, another word for trust is confidence. They learn how to manipulate confidence and we call them con artists. So here, this beautiful thing of trust can be horribly abused. And um, that's what I think authoritarianism is. Authoritarianism involves, uh, so, it involves manipulating people's trust so that they end up placing confidence in someone who is not, doesn't have their best interests at, at, at heart. Um, and I think this is one of the challenges with faith. Faith can be a deeply beautiful and important dimension of people's lives, but it, it renders people vulnerable to, uh, to being manipulated by authoritarians. And that's why I think it's very, very important for people to learn how maybe we could say to manage their faith, to develop their faith, to um, curate their faith so that they become less susceptible to manipulators. And, and doubt plays an important part in that. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I th- I think you you packaged it quite well. So as you're saying to unpack and and question, you you would call that element as shorthand doubt. So doubting is that process of because I'm seeing you 
describe faith as is it trust completely or faith is there's lots of trust elements in faith like are these words interchangeable as you're using them well no they're they're not really interchangeable but in that in in that example i was giving uh, i'm i'm using uh trust as a rough synonym for faith um and Mm. maybe we could say it like this We, we often use the word um blind faith and we also use the the phrase love is blind um but i would say that anyone who enters into a loving relationship uh doesn't stay blind for very long. <laughs> you, you become aware of the faults of the person that you're in relationship with. They become aware of yours. And then suddenly your blindness disappears and you have to start thinking critically. You realize, oh, when I say that to this person I love, I really hurt their feelings. Oh, when they say that to me, it really makes me insecure. And so now we start to have to do critical thinking. I wonder why that is. I wonder why I react that way. I wonder why this other person reacts that way. I think similar things go on in religious faith, um, that we might enter into it blindly, but then we start thinking, gosh, they told me if I prayed for a million dollars that if I prayed in the right way, I would get it, and I didn't get it. And so I wonder what's going on there. Or they told me that if I had faith, in God, all my diseases would be healed, and I'm still getting sicker than I was before. So how do I deal with that? So that's the critical thinking process that makes sure that our faith doesn't stay blind. How did you, I suppose, go on this journey to discover what you're talking about, the necessity of this doubtful process that unpacks this faith journey that we go on? What's For those of you who might be unfamiliar, what's your background and journey that's ultimately led you to, to, I guess, speak so positively about something that is characterized as so negative. Like doubt is generally, don't doubt, you know, doubting Thomas, that's a bad thing. Whereas when I hear you talk about it, you're talking about as an integral part of the faith journey. Um, Yeah. Talk to me about your background and your journey to these ideas. Yes. Well, um, I grew up in a really conservative religious background and, um, where uh, there was a good deal of authoritarianism. Um, And some of the hardest kinds of authoritarianism to deal with come up in religious uh, contexts where the authority figures are dead. (laughs) They're from previous centuries. And you're not allowed to question them uh, because they aren't around anymore. And what makes, and then that we have a new level of difficulty added on to that when there are people who interpret those authority figures uh, and, and they pretend that they're not the authority figures now that they're doing the, the interpreting. So in your upbringing, who were those dead authority, author, who were those dead authoritarians? Well, I mean, there was a, there was a group of them that were in the Bible, right? Moses and David and uh, uh-huh. Isaiah uh-huh. and Luke and Paul and everybody else. Um, but then we had a, another set, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and uh, Augustine of Hippo and, and Thomas Aquinas. And so we have this whole range of authority figures. Some of them, we don't even know their names, but uh, their authority is working through the people who are teaching us things that we're supposed to believe. And um, that's a complicated thing for anybody to grow up in if you start asking questions. 
Um, I started asking questions originally because I was really interested in science. As a kid, I loved nature. I loved animals and plants. And I started reading about evolution. And that was probably my first experience of doubt because evolution made so much sense to me. And my church told me, you're not allowed to believe that. You have to believe the earth is 6,000 years old and created in six literal days and so on. So that created a real tension for me. And, and so even as a kid, even before my teenage years, I was creating spaces in my brain where I had to say, I know the authority figures believe this. I'm not going to get in a fight with them about it because I know they're not going to change their mind, but I'm creating a little space for myself privately to not go along with that. And I think uh, that continued uh, through my life. In fact, as a teenager, I thought I'm just on my way out of this whole religious thing altogether. Um, I ended up having some kind of spiritual experiences and relationships that made me go deeper into faith, but then continually put me at odds with elements of, of my tradition where I had to have the, the, I don't know if you want to call it courage or privilege, or uh, I had to create the space where I could think differently than the people around me. And you, like what, what has been your background at like career wise yeah. as you so followed I, through that? I, I um, when I was in, in university, I was uh, an English major. I became a college English teacher. Um, and, you know, literature is interesting because it's all about interpretation. And when you, especially when you go to higher education in literature, you start realizing that all texts are interpreted and, and there's all different kinds of theories of literary interpretation. And you start to deal with uh, how all meanings are contested and, and there are stories behind every word. And uh, so all of that, gave me new tools in some ways to think critically about my faith. I ended up becoming a pastor. And during my years as a pastor, I continued to have to grapple with elements of my faith, especially, you know, I was teaching the Bible two, three, four times a week. And as a result, I, I wasn't just giving a few sermons. I was really deeply engaged with the Bible. And then as a preacher, I start noticing things in the Bible that I hadn't noticed before Many of those things were in tension with each other. Many of them were in deep tension with what I had been taught and what people in my religious community uh, accepted as common sense. And all of that forced me to have to do even more of that kind of critical thinking, which meant I would, I would have to doubt conventional uh, beliefs and opinions. So do you think your background in studying like literature and English and then taking that to the Bible, did that give you a different lens and a different set of tools to critique the Bible that currently yes. or back then or even currently doesn't exist uh, now? When we like when, when conventional pastors read the Bible, yes. are you reading it differently because of yes. your education? Yes. Uh, what, that space? A, what a great question. Yeah. Yeah, you know what happens in a lot of um, a, a lot of uh, traditional religion. This happens in Christianity, but it happens in Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, uh, uh, many, many Hinduism. Uh, I, I'm, there might be exceptions, but every religion that I'm aware of, um, there there is a, a certain kind of innocent, uh, naive level of engaging with the text where you have to take everything literally. Um, I, I have a friend who's Hindu. And he told me when he was a child, he had a, a children's book of stories from the Bhagavad Gita. 
and there's a tradition in Hinduism that you depict, you know how in Christian art, they often depict uh, saints uh, and holy people as having a halo. Well, in, in some Hindu art, they depict gods as the color blue. Um, and so my friend told me when he was a little boy reading the storybook with his mother, where Krishna was blue and Vishnu was blue, was blue, he said to his mother, did they really exist? And were they really blue? And she got, got very angry at him for even asking that question. Of course they did. And of course they were, you know. Um, and, and that approach to text was the same approach I was given to the Bible. But what's interesting when you study literature, you start to realize, oh, no, there are conventions. There are literary there are literary, literary conventions that say, when you paint somebody blue, you're not saying they really were blue. The painting is a way of getting across a message. It's not telling the truth, but it is telling the truth. It's not telling a literal truth, but it's, it's telling a different kind of truth. And, and you become mm. very comfortable with that when you study literature. But in many religious settings, they are not comfortable with that. They, they might be comfortable with it if you're reading Harry Potter or Cinderella or Shakespeare. But when you read the religious text, you have to take all of that literary uh, knowledge and push it aside. Because literature was my background, I think it wasn't easy for me to put aside and I couldn't see a good reason to put it aside. As you engage with the Bible you using these different tools, is, that, is this doubt that you're talking about is this inherent within these literary tools that people use to engage with all other texts and you just brought them to your theological understandings? Is, the, is doubt present in yes. other aspects of literature? Well, let, let me give you an example. Um, uh, there's a, a great work of English literature called Paradise Lost by uh, John Milton. And um, you can read that text uh, innocently uh, and it, it's a really interesting text. But when people really start delving into the text, some of them say, you know who the most interesting character in Paradise Lost is? It's not God. It's not Adam. It's the devil. He's by far the most dynamic and interesting character. And so then people start saying, I wonder why that is. Uh, what does that tell us about John Milton? You know, well, at that point now, we're not having an argument uh, or discussion about the devil, we're having a discussion about John Milton and what was going on in him. And then we might say, what does that say about Puritan British society? Because John, John Milton was a kind of Puritan figure. And then we start, might start talking about the psychology of being a Puritan or a conservative or a fundamentalist and, and how in a certain way that makes the devil even more interesting, right? What, what happens in literature very often is you look at one thing and then the rings start going out to look at other things. And, um, and uh, what I think what happens when you approach the Bible without those traditional liberal versus conservative or literal versus liberal, um, uh, and you are, uh, approach the Bible in a literary way, you're, you're just working with a different set of rules. And that different set of rules gives you a lot more room to play and a lot more room to explore and a lot more room uh, to look for meaning. Uh, and here's where you get in trouble with authoritarians, um, because some people say in my church, those aren't the rules we use to read the Bible. Um, and what's interesting about that is 
their rules aren't certainly aren't derived from the Bible. Their rules just come from their tradition, right? So in some ways, the question is, whose set of rules are we using when we, when we read the Bible? Now, look, I'm not some, saying anything goes. You can do anything you want with the Bible. I, I think there are all kinds of literary, sound literary practices for engaging with the text to find meaning, too. But, um, but I think it's sort of sad that in religious, many religious settings, they really constrict you. The way you read the Bible, you're only allowed to read it with a very limited toolbox. And you're saying that when we read any text, yes. for example, the Bible, yes. we are applying rules whether we realize it or not. So if, if I'm reading something without your literary background and understanding of, yes. I don't know, literature, uh, I, I'm applying a different set of rules and I just might not be aware of them. Yeah. And then kind of when you study this stuff, you go, oh, now I'm applying this. And the study is applying these labels and rules, but we all have rules. Is that kind yeah. of what you're saying? Yeah. And another word we could use uh, along with rules is the word tools. So um, for example, uh, when you approach a piece of literature, this is true of the Bible you can do something called a Marxist reading of the text. That sounds, that sounds very, very bad to say in America. If you just want to say Marx, <laughs> Marxist reading, this is, this is horrible. That's right. But, um, you know, a Marxist reading gives you a set of tools. You look for class conflicts. You look for the elites. You look for the proletariat, the bourgeois. And you're looking for all of these certain kinds of economic and power dynamics. Push that yeah. away for a minute. You can take in a feminist reading. Feminist reading brings a different set of tools. Let's look for the relationship between men and women. Let's look for the relationship between fathers and daughters, mothers and daughters. And now we have a new set of tools that we bring to the reading of the text. If you're only looking with a Marxist framework, you'll miss a lot of the feminist issues and uh, vice versa. Well, maybe we say, well, let's bring both of those. And then we might bring a psychological approach, a Freudian approach, and we'd look for uh, id, ego, and superego. And we might bring uh, a, a historical approach. We'd say, how does this text fit in with what's going on historically around it? And we might use a psychological approach. We look at the psychology of the author and so on. So we'd have all of these different sets of tools that we could bring, uh, that we could bring to the text. And we'd be saying all of these will help us not only understand the text better, but after we've understood the text, it might help us understand ourselves better and our own society better. And through that engagement, mm -hmm. we increase our capacities. Uh, to me, that's a wonderful way to engage with any, mm. any text, including the Bible. So a critique I, I keep hearing pop up is like the, um, when, oh, what's that? What's that latest thing that Donald Trump uh Banned and Christians were like all these all these different lenses you listed the feminist lens the Marxist lens um, the yes oh yes 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 he 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 banned critical race theory <laughs> thank you yes oh, thank you yes critical race theory yeah. like all these different lenses that you're approaching and I I've seen pop up in the Christian podcast sphere as I look at different commentaries on what's going on it it seems for example against critical race theory being like people are looking at the bible and talking about critical race theory and this is very anti-biblical or a marxist lens this is very anti-biblical and the way I see you looking at and engaging with these things is going this is a lens this is a lens this is another one and what do you see when you put these glasses on and you're describing yes. it as almost a deepening picture as this text sits there. You're saying there are many different perspectives I can look at this text with. And 
it doesn't sound like you're saying here is the correct tool or yes. lens to look through. It sounds like you you're talking about them as like an equal footing being like, well, what does this perspective say? And what does this perspective say? Is that how you're yes. describing it? Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. And that brings us full circle back to your um, initial comment about authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Because one of our great struggles, it seems to me, is that in some of our religious traditions, certain people have the authority to say, you cannot bring that tool to the table here. Uh, uh -huh. You cannot bring up any discussions about power and economics here. That's out of bounds. You can't bring up issues of of power and sexuality here. That's out of bounds. And, and in a certain sense, one dimension of doubt is to say, I doubt your authority to tell me that I'm not allowed. Uh, maybe I'm not allowed to do it on your property because you'll kick me off of your, uh, out of your building if I talk about that. Well, you probably have the authority to do that. But this is where we end up with struggles and, and it's where people suffer because uh, you know, for me, I, I, I have some empathy for the 12-year-old version of myself that was interested in science. And I went to a church that told me, you aren't allowed to think those thoughts about science. Um, and it, put, it was a tough thing for a 12-year-old to try to negotiate, you know. And doubt, as you're describing it, is that necessary pushback against being told here is how it is and you're saying it's a good thing to push back and say well i don't know about that and are you sure about that is how how are you if you were to define doubt in this sense in the way in which you use it because in your book you go through yeah. and doubt is that central almost tool that you're saying this is a necessary yeah. tool how would you define it yeah well you know i I, I don't know if I'd want to say this is, uh, I'm defining it this way, but I would say the word doubt relates to the word double. That's why that B is in there in English. Um, to doubt is to be in two minds, to have two thoughts. Uh -huh. Here's what I've heard, but here's what I wonder. Uh -huh. Here's what one person says, but here's what another person says. Mm. Um, and uh, in, in fact, this is exactly what we see going on, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, I'm asking you to have a second thought about what you've heard it said. You've heard it said you should love your friends and hate your enemies. I'm here to tell you, I actually think you should love your enemies, too. Mm -hmm. I'm asking you to have a doubt about what you've always heard. Mm -hmm. And open your mind to the possibility that there's another way to see this. Um, and uh, that's, that's, you might call that critical thinking. Yeah. You might call that having second thoughts. You might call that uh, abstaining from groupthink. Yeah. You might think of that as questioning authority figures or questioning tradition or holding out the option of nonconformity. Mm -hmm. It sounds like doubt or critical thinking as that practice of engaging with everything. We should do it with politics, yes. with uh, religion, with spirituality, with these different things. And you're saying that is the practice that almost sounds central, you know, saying Jesus yes. was doing it there. You're kind of saying this practice yes. is central to the biblical text and the Christian tradition. Would you say that? Yes, I think so. I, I, I think so. I, I won't say it's central to the Christian tradition 
in meaning that we've always practiced it well. Okay. Uh, I think it's a mixed bag. You know, for example, a guy like Martin Luther comes along and he says, I'm willing to doubt the fundamental authority figures of my religion and my culture. Um, I'm willing to doubt that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as soon as he gets power and anybody doubts what he's saying, he's ready to put him in jail sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's got a pretty harsh attitude to anybody who questions his way of thinking. So we human beings are, you know, not very consistent at, at, our, at our, uh, our average performance. But I, I think this is what Jesus is about. I actually think anyone who reads the Bible and, and they read it with second thoughts, they'll realize that this is woven through the Bible. Uh, uh, see, I mean, you, you think about Moses sets up these laws and then Micah comes along and says, you know what? Uh, those laws aren't really what matters. What really matters is doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God. You don't have 10 commandments. Those three will pretty much sum it up, right? So you, you start to see, well, in the Bible itself, we have, people being taking permission and being given permission to question and doubt. And, and they, they enter into conversation and into, they contest ideas. And, and, uh, and then you see later people's voices come up and they side with this person and not with that person. And, and we see those things that that's part of human life. Mm -hmm. And what to me is a little bit sad is when in the name of the Bible, we tell people you're not allowed to think for yourself. The Bible has done all your thinking for you. <laughs> and you would say that when, when someone says that, you're saying that's the form of authoritarianism that imposes one rigid reading yes. of the text and saying you can't read it any other way. You can only read it that way. And that is what you're t- talking yes. about as a form of authoritarianism. I think so. Yeah. Well, when you yeah. look at, this, it seems like a growing, and I don't know if it is or not statistically, but it seems like a growing generational shift of people growing up within church. Uh, we've spoken to a lot of people on the podcast who've just heavily deconstructed in that very deconstructed space. Yes. You you talk in your book about these four stages, uh, four stages of doubt or four stages yes. of spiritual development. And uh, talk to me about those four stages. And then the this stage that seems to be very prevalent right now which is the deconstructed one the one that seems to doubt everything that yes. people push back and say well it's this nihilism nihilist moral relativism that says nothing matters and we're all subjective what's the point yes. talk yeah talk to me about that journey and where a lot of people are ending up sure sure so i'll, I'll just run through these four stages and and the first thing i always have to say by way of disclaimer um I've been interested in human development, stage theory, uh, you know, for decades. And uh, what I do is I try to synthesize the work of about a dozen of the major theorists in the field. Um, and I, I offer a four-step uh, model or four-stage model of uh, faith development. Um, and this is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not saying everybody fits into these, but this seems to be a pattern. You find it across theorists. And I found it in my own experience. And when I've shared it with others, they say, yeah, this kind of matches my experience. Stage one is simplicity. And it's the stage of dualism. It's the stage when we're children where we learn to say that's safe, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's a friend, that's an enemy. Um, That's uh, good, that's bad. Dualism, putting things into those two categories. And a lot of people stay in that stage through their whole life, often because their religious community tells them, 
to be a good Christian, to be a good Muslim, to be a good Jew, this is the only way you're allowed to think. But what happens to many people is they get a little bit older, especially in puberty in their teenage years, and, and they, they grow up and they go off on their own. And they were taught, for example, certain prejudices. Let's say their parents were white and racist, and they told them people of other races are just inferior to us. And, and they go out and they meet people of other races, and they think, these are some of the best people I've ever met. And a lot of white people I met were not so great. And so now they start questioning and they realize life is more complicated than I thought before. And they say, oh, it's not just that, that white people are good and non-white people are bad. Some white people are good, some aren't. Some, not, some people of, of color are, are good and some aren't. And so now we've complexified that, uh, that stage or that, the, the binaries of simplicity. And in some ways now life just becomes complex and very pragmatic. How do I figure this one out? How do I deal with this one? And um, stage two feels a lot like a game, like, oh, I'm playing a lot of different games and I have to learn the rules of these different games. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people stay in stage two for their whole lives. They're dealing with the complexities of life. Is it still searching Um, for rules, that stage two? Is it still looking in and saying that... um, here's the rules, but it doesn't apply in this situation. So what is the rule? Is it like just stretching the rule, but still trying to stay within it? I think so. I think so. It's, and it's some, you know, in some ways you could just think of it as a math problem. Mm -hmm. In my childhood, I only had to put things in categories of two, but now I find out some things are in categories of three or categories of four. And, and I'm coping with a more and more complex world, but in some ways I'm making adjustments and fine tunings to the basic rules I was given as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you might think of it like this. I'm given a contract as a child. And then I get older and I start putting uh, qualifications to the contract, mm-hmm. yep. footnotes to the contract, uh, provisos to the contract. Um, you come to stage three, which I call perplexity. And that's when you say, I want to throw out this whole stinking contract. <laughs> This contract causes a lot of trouble. This doesn't make sense to me. The people who gave me this contract were trying to control me. And we become suspicious of, of all these, uh, of so many of the elements of the framework that we were given uh, when we grew up. We not only question other people, we even start questioning ourselves. It's when we, in a sense, say, you know what? Uh, I was criticizing all those white people. I'm a white person. Wow, I've been criticizing patriarchy and male chauvinism. I'm male. What do I do with that? Oh, I, I criticize how straight people treat gay people. I'm straight. And now we, we go in this process. And this is why I wouldn't characterize it as moral relativism, as a throwing out of morality. In some ways, it's saying, I'm realizing that the morality I inherited was not so moral. Mm. Um, it, it, it's realizing there were a lot of moral flaws to the morality I was given. And now I want to interrogate that. And it's not that I'm saying anything goes. It's that I'm saying uh, I'm aware that any way I try to write a new set of rules is imperfect. And a lot of people reach that stage of perplexity and they have nowhere to go. They think that's it. That's all there is to offer. And But I really agree with what you said, Conrad. For many of them, this, it's almost like they begin to see through everything. It's like they get x-ray vision 
and they see through everything and nothing seems to have value or substance anymore. And that can lead to a kind of nihilism or weightlessness um, where nothing really matters. And, and uh, there are all kinds of dangers that come up with that. And that's what drives many people to say, I'm not comfortable staying here either. Um, in fact, one of the things that happens is they say, I'm criticizing everybody else. What am I doing? Mm. And then they start, they, 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 in a sense, turn their scrutiny that they've applied to everyone else upon themselves. What kind of person I'm going, am I going to be? And I think that often becomes, in a certain sense, they doubt their doubt, you know, and that pushes them to an even uh, another level that I call harmony, where now, in a sense, love and empathy and compassion and justice become unifying principles in life and help us put together a new vision of life that sees the strengths and weaknesses of simplicity, the strengths and weaknesses of complexity, the strengths and weaknesses of perplexity, and we try to put together a bigger whole. Where does apologetics fit into that? Is is apologetics, is that kind of a stage two game? Is that the game of stage two? I I think it's the game of stage one and stage two, Uh yes. Uh, In stage one apologetics... We show how other people are wrong and we show how we're right. Uh In stage two apologetics, we try to understand the complexities of other religions, but very often our goal is to be the number one. And and so it it has a sort of pragmatic uh, goal. It sounds like the the stage two is the game of how can everything kind of fit apologetics? Like how, how can I still remain in the right camp? And this third deconstructed stage that it sounds that I'm coming across a lot of people questioning the system being like this system is broken for these reasons these rules not only do the rules not work but the system that created the rules is corrupt and therefore all these rules are kind of redundant and they don't make sense and I you know they might be led out of religion into atheism like some people I've spoken to or some people um and and Maybe you can shed some more light on this, but my impression of what I'm discovering is some people might throw the whole thing out and go, okay, I don't need whatever this religious system is because it's so broken and, and, and I just don't need it. And some others, it seems like you're saying when you go into this stage of harmony of finding, is it, is it, is it people finding this cohesive and wide enough structure of love and inclusion going, all right, all these all these granular rules, they're very complicated. They exclude. They don't really work. The system's corrupted. I can't apply these. But does that require everyone then to go back to, back as far as they can and get to something big enough where they go, this seems to be flexible enough to fit in all the complexities if I just try and love somebody, if I just try and live in harmony, like realize I'm a hypocrite, realize you're a hypocrite, so how do I engage with people with that understanding that I'm flawed and the system's flawed? Is that what what happens? You kind of find this space within what we're calling love and inclusion. This is that what happens? Yes, I, I think I think so. Um, and maybe I could use an example. If you think of the biblical library, um, uh, stage one would fit beautifully with the idea of law. Here are the rules: Ten Commandments, uh, make sacrifices. You know. Uh, wear this, don't wear that. Uh, Do this on this day, don't do this on that day. Uh, So that works very well in the mindset of simplicity. Um, But then you get to complexity. 
uh, and uh, you start saying, well, it's not that simple. What do we do with this? And what do we do with this? And, and now we have hundreds and hundreds of commandments that multiply through the Hebrew scriptures. And then um, we get to the wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs that says, you need those laws, but you also need some common sense wisdom to deal with the complexities of life. So in a sense, we go from law to, um, to wisdom literature, and then we have um, the prophets. And I would also say other parts of the wisdom literature, like the book of Ecclesiastes, that say, you know what, I've looked at all this. I see an awful lot of wasted effort. I see an awful lot of vanity. I see an awful lot that doesn't fit in with what I learned before. So that moves us into stage three. The prophets move us into stage three. You can do all the right sacrifices, but if you don't have the right heart, it doesn't mean anything, right? Mm. So now they move to this deeper stage. And I think many of them move into that fourth stage of harmony. Um, but And then Jesus comes on the scene. And I think what Jesus does is he says, yeah, I haven't come to abolish the law and I haven't come to abolish the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. In other words, I've come to take them to the next level. And that next level is a universal, non-discriminatory love. Um, it's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, the way your father is in heaven is perfect is he loves everyone, good or evil. This is a, a universal and non-discriminatory love. Um, and, and then he says the greatest commandment is love. And, and Paul picks up the exact same theme, that love is the thing that really, really matters. So this seems to me to be the sort of direction that we find in, in the biblical library itself. With these ideas, you cop fire from, I would call it, both sides. So speaking to, I'm pretty sure, your friend and friend of the show, Bart Campolo, who is like humanist chaplain gone down that path he it sounds like if you if you listen to that episode and i put your framework on top of that episode those stages you're describing he spoke very much about himself going going through that and he ended up coming out going listen this system i don't need it he he might say to you brian you're playing these games with strict scriptures you have to apply this critical like english lit lens and it you know we all it's just you have to do so much with the text to really get this love message out I'm going to throw it away. That's one side that says, Brian, wh why, why stick with it? Like, what's your kind of response in a conversation like that? Yeah, you know, um, first Bart's a friend of mine, and um, I understand and appreciate why he took the road he took. Um, and I don't want to argue with him about that. I think there are an awful lot of people who have who inherited a form of faith that was so destructive to their being that, that, and they weren't given any deeper and wider way to stay with it. So I understand why they just need to get away. So I don't really want to criticize uh, Bart, um, especially because the way he's chosen to live his life is, I think, very much in line with what we're talking about in that uh, stage four. Um, uh I know he would call himself a secular humanist. I might call him a Christian humanist who doesn't know he's a Christian. Yeah. And, and he, but I don't need to do that because I don't care what he calls himself. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, but here's the thing. Uh, 
I, I would, if I were to argue with Bart, I'd say, I think he's giving way too much credit to the fundamentalists. Uh-huh. He's allowing them to set the rules of the game. And I just don't, I, I don't want to do that. I don't think they're allowed to do that mm-hmm. because if you let, if you let the crudest and least nuanced thinkers in any field define the rules of the game, you will have to leave that field. Mm-hmm. Let, let me give you an example. I, uh, um, I have a, a, a friend. Uh, he ha- happens to have the same last name as me, but he's uh, uh, not, we're not related. Um, his name is Peter McLaren, and he is a Marxist theorist of education. Mm-hmm. And Peter makes devastating critiques of the educational system, devastating critiques. And, um, uh, but you know, it's, and, and you could imagine someone saying, I'm just done with education. I want nothing to do with it. But what Peter says is he says, look, you don't throw out education because it's being corrupted. You challenge those people who are turning education into something that limits human imagination. You challenge them because Education has a noble tradition and has unexplored potential that we want to bring out. So uh, I understand why people would say, I'm sick of the school system. I'm going to quit it. I don't criticize them for that. They have every right to do that. And their departure gives an important message to the school system mm-hmm. uh, and to you know educational systems as they are. Mm-hmm. But I also respect uh, my, my uh, surname's sake, uh, Peter McLaren, who said, let's give it the blistering critique that it needs, and then let's use that to let something new uh, emerge from that critique. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, it sounds like you're saying, who has the authority to define what something is? And if you yes. see value in it, you have almost just as much claim. So when people say, Brian, oh, you're not a real Christian, it sounds like your answer would be, I mean, who gets to say who's a real Christian, who's not? I believe I am. You believe you are. I'm, I'm happy to engage with this and fight for what I think is valuable within this tradition. So I guess my question then to you, Brian, is what is valuable within this tradition as to why you stay within it and almost fight for it in a way, going like, you know what? I think Jesus meant this. I think the Bible does this. I think this is helpful because of these reasons. Yes. What, what do you get out of this tradition that you might lose if you, say, just ditched it altogether? Yes. Well, look, I, the problem, I, I, I'm not criticizing your question, Conrad, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm about to criticize my difficulty in answering it. You can criticize and, and anything. That is that <laughs> this is who I am. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is who I am. Uh, so uh, uh, if it's my, it's, it's what's formed me. Huh. Um, and so uh, if, I, if I had not found any worth in it, if I had found that it was as flat and rigid and destructive as I think more fundamentalist uh, readers of the Bible and of the Christian tradition uh, to me are, I would have left it. Hmm. But my honest experience is there really are treasures there. There really uh, are. There's a pearl of great price. There's really treasures there. Hmm. And I don't want to walk away from those treasures. Um, I understand people who do, and and there are so many offensive things in the Christian religion. I don't blame them. In fact, the follow-up to this book, Faith After Doubt, that I'm just finished the first draft of now is called Do I Stay Christian? And I'm grappling with this question Mm. of Christian identity. And 
And so I, I understand all of that. But my honest experience is that, uh, that there really are treasures and I love them and I want to inhabit them and I'm not finished with them yet. There's more, I feel there's so much more uh, for me to learn. And I've also found a way of being a Christian that doesn't cut me off from the treasures that anyone else has to offer too. So the way I'm a Christian means when my Buddhist friends come to me with their treasures, I'm so happy to learn from them. And when my Jewish and Muslim friends and when my secular humanist friends come, I want to learn all I can from them. Uh, and the, the best thing is my friends of other traditions don't say, you're not allowed to have any of our treasures unless you convert and join us. Mm. I'm sure there are some people that say that, but not my friends. Mm. My friends say to me, anything I have, I'm happy to share with you. And I say to them, anything I have, I'm happy to share with you. Mm. Yeah, that is a very interesting answer to the question. And I think I think I do understand it. I'm hearing this interconnectedness of your life's journey growing up fundamentalist yes. to going into theology and being a pastor for many years and wrestling with people in their faith. And it sounds like to me your answer is, it, some might Maybe some people would think it a cop out, but I'd not. I don't think it is in the sense that you're just saying I. You are currently deriving value from it as you grapple and journey through it, and because you are getting value from it, I mean that's the answer to the question. Yes, and look, uh, maybe to bring, maybe to bring uh, Bart Campolo back into it. Mm. I I have so much respect for Bart, mm. and I think Bart reached a point in his life where he thought. There is nothing in this tradition except headaches and criticism and judgment and worthless debates. Mm. And that was his honest experience. Mm -hmm. And he responded to his honest experience. If that had been my honest experience, I would have left as well. Mm. Um, but my experience was I just threw all that stuff away that was a hassle. But I kept finding, oh, but there's these other people out there. And they offer this new set of treasures. And there's other people there who have, they're, they've embodied something else. And so there are great treasures for me um, there. So it just hasn't been my experience to say mm. it's nothing but garbage. There is a lot of garbage, right? <laughs> and there is a lot of hassle. Uh, but here's my problem. I am stuck being an American. And there is so much hassle to being an American. <laughs> and, I, and there could be a point where I, I apply for, Australian citizenship. Oh, man, it's pretty uh, bloody difficult to get in. I don't know about that. <laughs> Keep them out. Uh, that's, part of the, that's part of the problem. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like any, and, and I face, I'm a human being. And, mm. and the fact is, human beings are a hot mess. Uh, and so I'm stuck being a human being and I've got to make the best of it. And I've got to look at the worst in the human tradition and say, let me please stay away. From, let me please not replicate that. And I look mm -hmm. for the best in the human tradition. And I say, let me please embody that. And so I'm doing that in my particular location in the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. in the Christian wing of the human tradition. I'm trying to live that out. Yeah. I want to pull out what some listeners, hopefully, if they're still listening, they'll be very uncomfortable and very dissatisfied with the answers you're giving a certain subsection. Because it sounds as if... When, uh, you know, we bring up Bart Campolo, who's, who obviously is a secular humanist, you know, atheist, doesn't believe in a God, and you're over here saying, I, I do, but then you're also not saying, my journey is the journey. 
you're saying my journey has led me here and yeah. so it's my journey and given Bart's experience or anyone other anyone else who has a different experience to you it doesn't sound like you're giving people who might be uncomfortable the answer they might be looking for that says Brian which is the best one which is the right one it sounds like you're kind of saying for me yeah. this is the right one for me and that may not be the right one actually for Bart. So it sounds like you wouldn't even be saying to Bart, come on, yes. mate, give it another chance, become an actual pastor. I think you're a Christian anyway, come on. And it doesn't sound like you have any interest in trying to say my way is is more right than your way. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, um, yes, I think it is what you're hearing. And But maybe I could go back to those four stages we talked about. Yeah. If a person is in that stage of simplicity, the only tool they have at this moment is the tool of saying who's right and who's wrong. Mm -hmm. So if they're saying, is Brian right or is Bart right? I, I understand why they need to ask that. That's what you ask when mm -hmm. you're at that stage. That's the tool that you have. Then you get to the stage of complexity and you have a few more tools in the toolbox. And then you'll say, um, hmm, I wonder how I'm going to deal with the fact that there's a Brian in the world and there's a Bart in the world. Mm. How do I want to relate to both of them? Mm. And, and you have sort of a practical, pra pragmatic problem to deal with. Mm. And then you get to that third stage and, and you'll think, you know, you have another set of tools that you bring to it. So yeah. what I'd say to people who, who are trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong, what I'd say is, if you need to say that I'm wrong, mm -hmm. I understand. In fact, if you need to say that Bart and I are both wrong, <laughs> I understand. Okay. Uh, I, I understand why you'd need to say that. Yeah, that is an interesting analogy when you keep using the metaphor of tools in saying that, oh, all I've got at the yeah. moment is this hammer. And then as 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 you doubt and question and, and just life throws stuff at you, you will shift and change inevitably yes. and you'll suddenly go, oh, I've got a screwdriver now. And so when listening to another conversation, <laughs> you'll go, well, I actually don't even need to decide whether this is right or wrong. The hammer, maybe I'll just pick up something else and maybe that will help me engage and move forward and as life takes you on your journey you just inevitably will come across more tools to help you analyze things that are complex and don't make sense is that kind of a summary yes yeah I, I, that's beautifully it's beautifully said conrad and this is where authoritarianism comes in again yeah. because some of us live in communities where authority figures tell you the only question you ask if you're a Christian, the only response, mm. the only tool is judgment, good or bad, saved or damned, biblical or unbiblical, as if, and, and of course that works with the assumption, you know what biblical is, right? Mm. Um, or, or your denomination or group knows. Um, uh, and it also has an assumption that biblical only has one answer to every question. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but then you'd say, but what if we took another tool, the tool of curiosity, huh, I've never heard anybody say anything like that before. That really sounds strange. I'm really curious why he would say that. Or maybe empathy. I wonder what brought him to the place where he felt it was necessary to respond that way, right? Mm. Now we find out, oh, there's judgment. That's certainly one response. And then another response is curiosity. And maybe I could try all three of those tools on and have some flexibility. In fact, maybe before I should have my judgment, I should have a little bit of curiosity and empathy. So th mm. that's where that that um, that metaphor of tools, I think, mm -hmm. uh, uh, is helpful. And here's what's interesting: a lot of people can have empathy and curiosity outside of religion, 
But in their religious community, they're only allowed to have judgment. Um, another way to say that is they might be in stage two, three, or four outside of religion, but as soon as they come in a religious context, hmm. they've been told that that's the only tool that you're supposed to use. Can it operate on the inverse? Can it operate on the inverse that goes within religion? You ha- you might be you know loving, inclusive, and acceptive, and then on the political, you can have these yes. four stages yes. that, or, or the or being in the first stage is. This framework that you've painted, am I stretching it to say, perhaps can this apply to this political realm as well, where it becomes political parties become your religion? Does it work in that space? It it really does. And I should say, to be really honest, this is what I see going on in my country. I'm sure folks in Australia, you watched what happened here on January 6th. And I think there were two groups of people who were who are who both were present on January 6th at our attempted coup. One were religious people who were in stage one, and the other were stage two and three people who found no meaning. And so they reverted to stage one, but now politics is their religion, and their nation is their religion, and their political ideology is their religion. And and they get along just fine. Um, uh, and I know this because I have a dear friend uh, here where I live who is 100% in the Trump camp. Mm-hmm. He was cheering on the people on January 6th. And I know him. And, I, and because I have the tool of curiosity and empathy, I don't just judge him. I disagree with him deeply. And he knows that. But I also, he's my friend. I love him and I seek to try to understand him. He is not religious at all. Mm. He is not religious at all. Um, but, and I think he is a stage three person and life was so complicated in stage three that he now has in a sense reverted to stage one and his political ideology, he's willing to tolerate all those religious people, but his real Mm. thing now is nationalism. Yeah. Do you think that there's an interplay on some level that when being under some level of what you describe as authoritarianism within a religious structure, having a pastor saying, this is the yeah. only way to read this text. They are right. They are wrong. We are in, they are out. Yes. Do you think there is like, what's the danger of that? Is there any danger of that coming over into the political realm? Does that, this authoritarianism within one structure, does this prime people for authoritarianism in a political realm or in other areas of their life? Yeah, you know, if anybody's interested, I have a little, um, it's a, like an extended essay on my website that you can download, um, a little ebook. Uh, it's called The Second Pandemic, Authoritarianism and Your Future. Uh-huh. Um, and so if people are interested, I've been thinking a lot about the subject of authoritarianism. And after World War II, there was a lot of research done on authoritarianism, uh, especially uh, by a Canadian uh, who I, I'm just drawing a blank on his name at this moment. It'll probably come to me, Bob Altemeyer. And Bob Altemeyer has done a lot of research on authoritarianism in different nations, different cultures. Uh, and basically his proposal is that about 30% of human beings, it's no fault, it's, it's just a, a, a difference, are born with a, a psychological structure that he calls authoritarian followers. And, and one way to describe it is these are folks 
who experience a high level of anxiety or a high level of shame that is relieved when they submit to an authoritarian figure. And when they submit to that authoritarian figure, they derive ecstasy, they derive security, they derive joy. Uh, and let's say that that maybe is true. Let's just hold that up as a hypothesis, that about a third of us are prone. It, it's no fault. It's like some of us are prone to diabetes and some of us are prone to depression and some of us are, are prone to anger. And some of us are prone that when we're anxious or feel ashamed, we, we find great relief in an author, authority figure. Um, if that's the case, then this would show up in politics. It would show up in religion. It would show up in business. And I think that's exactly what I think that's exactly what we see. And and when you study authoritarianism, you find that religion and and authoritarian uh, that religious authoritarianism and political authoritarianism often go hand in hand, as do business authoritarianism and military authoritarianism. So and it, uh, yeah, it sounds like like I was prepared to kind of ask you the question of like, is there a particular accepted doctrine that leads people to authoritarianism? But it sounds like you're saying it's not it's not necessarily an idea or doctrine, but almost a biological uh, something going on that might yeah. coalesce these people. So biologically, people might experience this high of submitting to or, or need, let's say, to submit to an authoritarian leader and they might coalesce within a, like a fundamentalist church that might have that. And then they might just, because of that tendency, enter into finding these authoritarian le leaders in the political. It sounds like you're kind of saying that that might be the case rather than saying if you, if you subscribe to penal atonement theory, you're more likely to vote for this authoritarian. Yeah, I think I think to to bring us to the level of complexity i think both are true uh, uh -huh. i think i and i think they i think they mutually reinforce one another and what mm. you just described in many ways is what's happening i think in american politics and it's happening in brazil and it's happening yeah. in mexico and it's happening in a lot of other yeah. places too but um uh, what maybe i could give two analogies conrad that mm. would make sense um uh a lot of people tonight. I had a, a, a can of beer um, at, at when I ate, when I ate dinner, and um, uh, so I went to the liquor store and I bought a six pack of beer. Um, I've never been drunk in my life. It's no virtue. I just I, I like to have a beer now and then. I've never had ten beers, right? So uh, I've never had ten cokes. I don't think I'm capable <laughs> of drinking that much. It's no virtue. It's just not my thing. Uh, um, but I, I'm aware that uh, some people are triggered by alcohol and they become alcoholics. Mm. So that doesn't mean mm. that all liquor stores and all bars are bad. It, but it means that the fact that they exist, that's the place where people who have a problem with alcohol have to be especially careful. Um, uh, I, I'm not a gambler, but I've been to a casino and I've played a few, you know, uh, games at a casino, but for some people, the casino be, triggers them into an addiction. And so what we could say is not all religious leaders are authoritarian, but you can bet where there are authoritarian leaders, they will attract people who are attracted to authoritarian leaders. Mm -hmm. And so this, to, so I, I don't know if that analogy yeah. makes sense, but that, I, that's how I see it. It's something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's not a hard and fast uh, rule, but it's a pattern you're observing 
uh, within the religious. Yeah, and, and then you would you would also say people who um, th- there's other research that says one to three percent of people have authoritarian leader characteristics, narcissism, uh-huh. aggression, and and it's not surprising. Some of those narcissistic people would be attracted to ministry. Some would be attracted to um, politics. Some might be attracted to uh, theater and being uh, celebrities, uh, rock stars. You can imagine where a narcissistic person Mm. would be attracted, where they would get a lot of attention, a lot Mm. of adulation, a lot of respect. Um, and, And if a narcissistic person ends up in religion, it's going to do damage. And if they end up in politics, they're going to do damage. And, mm. and they're going to maybe become authoritarians who attract authoritarian followers. So to me, it's just a, yeah, it's a pattern. I think that's, mm. that's not hard to observe once you know what to look for. Yeah. It sounds like you're saying a genetic predisposition to a vice. We accept it within alcohol. Like, you know, my family has a history of alcoholism, so be careful. And then, so you're almost extending that saying, well, if you have a predisposition to authoritarianism, be very careful of ministry and politics because that's you're going to be drunk on that very quickly. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, the, I mean, the problem is that the people who are most susceptible to it probably won't be open to that kind <laughs> of statement, right? Yes. Uh, which is what makes life, which is what make life, makes life complicated. Um, so... Yeah. And, and, and I should just say, I haven't had a chance to keep up with all of the comments, but I know someone said, ask him about how he others those who don't agree with him. I was, and, that, um, that was going to be my next question because Brian, you've been so generous with your time. Yeah. Uh, we've gone over time, that's for sure. And that, that was my final question. People in the live chat pushing through. Normally I ask, how, how, do you, how do other people see you? And we've kind of covered a bit of that. But how do you see other people? And especially with what the question is saying and saying, you, you, you're kind of saying, well, you know, there is no necessary right or wrong. People are on different journeys. But then surely on some level, there is this, well, you know, fundamentalism leads to these sorts of things. And I don't think that's the way to go. How, how do you see other people without othering them as you go on your journey and them on theirs? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Look, it's very clear if you've read any of my books, uh, I have, uh, you know, I have things I'm trying to promote and I have things that I think are super destructive and I'm trying to do everything I can to impede those and get in the way of them and put my life and my voice as an obstacle to those things happening. For example, I think climate change is a real and present danger and I do everything I can to raise my voice about that. But and, and climate change deniers think I'm wrong, and I think they're wrong. Mm. Um, I don't hate them. I, I understand they have reasons for denying climate change, and I, I, I continue to oppose them, but I also try to love them and understand them and show respect toward them. Um, so I certainly oppose them. I think they're wrong. They think I'm wrong, mm. and I try to disagree with them in a respectful way. I don't hate them. Um, and I don't. And one of the things, you know, one of the principles of ecology is that there is no away, meaning you can't throw anything away. Mm-hmm. Um, you throw something away, it goes somewhere, even if it's a landfill, it's somewhere. Uh, and, and that's certainly true of people. We can't throw people away. Um, and so we have to treat one another with respect. And if we disagree and if we think they're doing something harmful, we have to explain. We have to do everything we can to offer them a different a different approach. Mm. Um, but 
we don't have to hate one another and discard one another and throw people away. Um, and so, yeah, that's I, that's how I hope. Yeah, I, that's how I hope I do it. Because yeah. is this is this another level? Is this a reinterpretation, or almost could it be summed up with hate the sinner? I mean, hate the sin, love the sinner. Because it, I feel like it could be that similar pragmatic reality that says, okay, if, if you think climate change is a serious problem, well, if we don't address it, my grandchildren are going to struggle. They're going to pay for it economically. They're going to pay for yes. it uh, health-related. They're going to pay yes. for it with more wars, disputes over land, all these types of things. They're going to suffer. Yes. And if you deny that, I think you are absolutely wrong. But then you're still trying to say but I can try and use these tools to understand. I can not throw you away as a person. And it sounds, it sounds as if this is where even fundamentalists that we might be character, uh, like painting a caricature of and, and talking about in this, in this discussion, they might even agree with you in that. They might even say, of course, yeah, like I don't yes. hate the homosexual. I'm just telling them that their ways will lead them to hell and I'm yes. loving them. And so in a way it's like, there is that point of agreement, but on very different political realities. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I think look, if, if a fundamentalist, one of the rules that that fundamentalist, fundamentalist lives by is that I should love my neighbor as myself and I should treat others as, they want, as I would want to be treated, um, then at that point, we're on a, we, we can disagree on a thousand other things. Mm -hmm. But we're going to try to disagree with one another in a humane and dignified way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say what I'm saying is hate the sinner and love the sin, mm -hmm. because I think uh, uh, I, I, I think there, that can be abused in a whole lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is we've got to love each other. We've got to love everybody. And then we've got to work through our disagreements mm -hmm. uh, in the context of love. So it, there's certainly similarities between those two. Yeah. yeah. When you say we've got to love everybody, I think everyone, I think everyone would agree with that. When you say we've got to love everybody, how might you emphasize what you're saying to be different from the fundamentalist preacher that gets up there saying we've got to love everybody, but we got to stop gay people from getting married. How would you say yes. when you're saying we've got to well, love everybody, how is that? How are you emphasizing that? Yes. Well, um, I suppose I could say it like this. Um, when that person is saying, hate the sinner, uh, uh, hate, hate the sin and love the sinner, what they're saying is, I'm not going to question my idea of sin. I'm not going to question my story of what's going on in the universe. My story is right. My definition of sin is right. And I'm going to work within that definition, and that's and that's the way I'm going to uh, uh, understand everything. And you know, so my frameworks uh, is my starting point, and that's even going to define what I mean by love. So, uh, so I'm sure you may be here in Australia. We've got this group called the Westboro Baptists, mm. who show up and hold up "God hates fag" signs, and they they do this sort of thing. I'm 100% sure if you ask them, they would say, we're doing this in love. Mm, yeah, yeah, they would. Um, 
you know. They might also say hate the sinner because they can find a Bible verse that tells them that God hates sinners yeah. and they'll quote that Bible verse to justify them hating sinners. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think there, there is a, a deeper difference, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to argue about that. Mm-hmm. What I would just want to say, if we can just start where each of us feel the obligation to try to treat the other as we would want them to treat us, I think we've got the, the, the basis to at least have constructive disagreement, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm hearing this thread as pulls, that pulls through all your ideas, which makes the clickbait work, is this thread of doubt that says maybe the difference in what you're talking about is saying, I'm still going to disagree. I'm still going to look at someone's ideas and go, you know what? I think, I think you're definitely wrong about that. I'm definitely still going to do that. But if I introduce this thread of doubt... Maybe as I engage with you back and forth and say, oh, I think you're wrong. If I can have this thread of doubt, this stage three level of like, well, I fit this category as well. Can I apply this definition yes. to myself, to my own beliefs? Yes. Then maybe that leaves the door a jar open so that if your ideas are flawed and you're engaging with that exercise, that doubt will hopefully kick you up the bum to maybe shift you exactly right. from that position. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, it's so interesting when you engage in conversation with someone where you're not ready to learn anything from them because you've written them off as evil and you're just there with your message in a unidirectional way to to get your message through to them until they comply, until they submit. Uh, Maybe they're going to learn something from you. I doubt it because (laughs) what happens is people tend to respond you know, with their own unidirectional communication, we talk past Mm -hmm. each other. But if I engage with someone where I say, if you're speaking, I want to learn from you. I want to listen. I want to at least understand you. Uh, I'm not in the conquest defeat mode. I've got another tool. And my tool is curiosity and empathy uh, and humility. Mm -hmm. Uh, New new levels of interchange are possible, I think. Mm. Brian, You've been so generous. We've gone over time. Thank you so much for unpacking these ideas. I feel like I could go for a lot longer as we pull out. You've written a fair few books and you have a lot of interesting ideas I'd love to keep exploring, but I I shan't. Brian, where can people get a hold of your books and the stuff you're doing at the moment if they want to follow up some of your ideas you're talking about? Yeah. Well, the easiest thing is just go to Mm brianmclaren.net. Um, and uh, at that site, they'll get links to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all my other resources. Yeah. Have I missed anything in this conversation where you might want to tighten up and clarify anything like that? Oh, I'm sure I've left a lot of loose ends, but you've done a great job and it has been a pleasure talking to you. You ask really good questions and I, it's really been a, it's been a pleasure. The time has just flown by for me. As oh, well. Awesome. I've enjoyed it so much and I'm sure the listeners have joined, uh, have enjoyed it as well. Listen, if you're listening to this and you are just bristling and disagreeing with everything and you've made it an hour 20 into the bloody podcast, then you, my friend, are experiencing what I'm trying to do here at Isis Digest. Can we listen and sit with the ideas we disagree with? If that's you, well done. If I've missed any questions, send through on Instagram, what did I miss? If you'd like to catch up with Brian, the information's there. It'll be linked in the show notes below. Whether you agree or disagree, I don't really care. And as Brian would say, uh, we have other tools that we're going to use for this. So thanks for tuning in. This podcast episode will be 
up on the podcast. And if you want to get in touch with us, use Instagram. Other than that, thanks for tuning in and I will catch you in the next episode.